Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Cohn. You know, the digital age allows our media paths to transcend time and space as we discover and rediscover the books and movies and television and music that resonate with us and stay with us. If you grew up in the 70s, then you well know the catchy and touching sound of Gilbert O'Sullivan. Gilbert combines warmth with whimsy in a way that finds a permanent place in our hearts. His hits, Claire, Get Down, and Alone Again Naturally, have been enriching our spirits for generations. Gilbert will be making three exclusive West Coast appearances over Thanksgiving weekend, and today he's coming to us from his home in England. Gilbert will join us in just a few moments. But first, Fritz, what have you got for us? I have a great movie. This movie is streaming and in theaters at the same time. And as I've said before, I am a sucker for a true story. This one is listed as inspired by a true story. That means the circumstances and events are true, but some of the dialogue is manufactured. It's a courtroom drama where Southern politics, racism, and injustice for the economically depressed all clash. Jamie Foxx plays a flamboyant personal injury attorney from Mississippi, Willie E. Gary. He has a client, Jeremiah O'Keefe, a senior white funeral homeowner played by Tommy Lee Jones. O'Keefe hires Gary to sue a major national funeral home corporation for welching on a deal. The problem is that this is essentially a contract dispute, an area in which Willie Gary has no experience. But that doesn't stop him from pursuing a potentially huge payday. Jamie Foxx's character is a smooth, black church preacher type, just oozing a slick personal injury persona. This happens to play well with the all-black jury of this trial. He relates to them beautifully, knows what's important to them, knows the language to use to win them over. Tommy Lee's character is a man who has had some bad luck in business, but refuses to give up and wants to stick it to the major corporation on principle. Think in terms of Johnny Cochran as the plaintiff attorney in a giant tobacco lawsuit. This film was based on an article in 1999 in New Yorker magazine. Some of the reviews mentioned an Oscar nomination for Jamie. I agree. Wonderful performances by both Jamie and Tommy and the others as well. Great movie. Wow. In theaters? In theaters and streaming at the same time. I don't know how they do that or the purpose of that, but that's what they're doing. But you go for the where the popcorn is. Yeah, I do. I appreciate that. <laughs> I would like to share a couple of podcasts with you that have captured my attention. The first is from NBC News, and it's called Grapevine. It comes to us from Mike Hicksonbaugh and Antonia Hilton, who brought us Southlake, which delved into a Texas town's outraged backlash against a diversity awareness program designed to address the racism experienced by black students in its schools. Within that vein of parental fear and outcry comes the new podcast, Grapevine. Centered in a town next door to South Lake, here, a mom fears that her teen son has been convinced by a teacher to switch genders. Mike Hicksonbaugh and Antonia Hilton look into the story and find a transgender child longing to be understood, a mother determined to put God first, and an English teacher caught in the middle. But there is so much more to consider. They uncover a fringe religious movement inspiring an evangelical quest to overtake what they call the seven mountains of life. Family, religion, media, business, entertainment, government, and education. Within their two-dimensional framework of God's will and everything else, LGBTQ kids are finding no safe space. Grapevine gives us a personal perspective on American families facing the wrath and judgment of an increasingly fearful and intolerant right wing. And for its stoking these fires of conservative fury is a mostly concealed, powerful background figure named Leonard Leo. 
You may be familiar with Leo as Clarence Thomas's luxury accommodations benefactor. <laughs> what we're learning is that if you're a young person looking for a lifetime of gratis yacht and resort travel, head for law school and look for the Federalist Society sign-up table at the Student Center. <laughs> the podcast, We Don't Talk About Leonard, comes from ProPublica and WNYC's On the Media. Leo has been influencing the rightward leaning of our courts for decades through the Federalist Society and dark money donors. Those in his political circles whose strings he pulls do not discuss him openly, thus the show's title. Many sources spoke to reporters anonymously. Systemically, Leo has used and exerted influence to construct a network of pre-approved conservative judges and carefully place them throughout our judicial system to not only decide cases according to plan, but to bring the correct cases to the highest court even if they need to be reverse engineered. He has built a machine to do exactly that. Having commandeered the courts with his supermajorities, Leo is moving on to fight wokeism in schools as well as in environmental, social, and governance policies affecting corporate America. In other words, he is ascending the seven mountains. We Don't Talk About Leonard explores the web of money, influence, and power behind the conservative takeover of America's courts and beyond, as orchestrated by Leonard Leo. It comes to us from ProPublica and on the media. And where's the accountability? I mean, all this stuff was revealed by all the ProPublica and all these media outlets, and there hasn't been one thing that's happened. Where are Jenny, where is Jenny Thomas in all these indictments? You know? It's unbelievable to me. Yeah, I, I can't answer your question, Fritz. I don't expect you it to. It was These a gotcha question, question yeah. and I feel no, really, I'm not a gotcha. Yeah, this I'm is just... when I just stare at the maybe I, <laughs> I smoke my cigarette with the long ash like Nathan Thurm <laughs> right. and say I didn't say that you said that. <laughs> But I would rather introduce Gilbert O'Sullivan. His distinctive style of catchy, introspective songwriting grabbed our attention in 1972. The smash single, Alone Again Naturally, topped charts throughout the world, spending six consecutive weeks at number one in the States. It was nominated for Song of the Year and Record of the Year at the Grammys and may have won both, were it not for that peskily brilliant Roberta Flack. Subsequent hits for Gilbert included Claire, Get Down and Out of the Question. He is a songwriting soul whose newest album is called Driven. He will be making three exclusive West Coast USA appearances over Thanksgiving weekend in Phoenix, San Francisco, and right here in Los Angeles. So check out our show notes for all of the details, and we'll be discussing them here on the show as well. Please welcome, if you will, Gilbert O'Sullivan. Yes, sir. Yes, hello, Louise and Fritz. Nice to be talking to you. It's so nice it's to see you. It's a pleasure to talk Where to you. Where are you exactly? Because we're about I'm to... in England. I'm in Jersey, which is in the Channel Islands, which is a small island about half an hour by plane to the UK. Now, it's a lovely I, island. I have it's one. Per, a... I have one personal question for you. Can you see water from your inside your home? No, oh. no, but it, but it's only around the corner. Ah, that'll do. Because, that'll do. You know, it's a small island, so we are surrounded by sea. We're quite inland, but in a nice location. I, to live. I I know. Lots of people are really looking forward to you coming to L.A. Is this the first time you've performed at the Troubadour? Because that in itself is historic. Yeah, in fact, it's interesting because way back in the early 70s, um, we know that Elton, Elton John, that, that kind of made him. That was uh, the breakout place for him. <clears throat> yeah, and of course, then you had people like James Taylor, Carol King. It became, it was a renowned venue. And when, when my tours were was set up for America after the success of Alone and Clearing Get Down, my manager, Gordon Mills, he managed Tom Jones and Egbert Humperdinck, who were performing in large theatres, if not, if not arenas and stuff. So he had to make the choice. Do I let Gilbert go into a troubadour-like scenario, or do I put him out like Tom and Engelbert? Big mistake was made. They put me out like Tom and Engelbert, which wasn't a good thing 
because even if you're selling a lot of records, it doesn't guarantee bums on seats. And so my first tour was a slightly mini, a wonderful disaster. But yes, the lesson learned, I should have really followed that path of doing something like the Troubadour, those smaller venues, to build up a reputation if it was going to be good. Well, it's a brilliant place for you to return. When was the last time you toured the United States? But three years ago, we got back into America because I had a, I have a really good band and we toured Europe and the UK and Japan. But to get into America was very difficult. But three years ago, with my guitar player, we decided to do an up course and personal, a more kind of um, uh, just a smaller show, just two hours of just my songs, but it was kind of intimate. Yeah. And so to hear the lyrics more clearly. Mm. And because we did that successfully, that opened the door for us to come over to you. So we've done North America and coming to the West Coast is something I really wanted to do right from the early 70s and stuff. So I'm so looking forward uh, to appearing. Well, we cannot wait to have you here. Uh, Now, let's go back to your childhood a few years. You were one of six children. Your mother, May, ran a sweet shop and your father was a butcher. So you had all your food groups covered. Um, (laughs) And you say that you come from a working class background, but that it was always important to your family to have a piano. I think every working class family in those days uh, seemed to have a piano in the house. I think the reason being that they felt that if one of their children could learn to play it, they could maybe earn a few pounds, a few dollars in the in the pub. In the, <laughs> so, and so I think that's the, the, the reasoning behind. So they may not have had much money and stuff, but they certainly always had a piano. So the piano was in our house. My mother wanted one of us to, to be musically inclined and nobody else and none of the other children, my brothers and sisters, uh, really took to the music, but I did. So everyone kind of walked around the piano or maybe placed items on top of the piano. And you well, said, yeah, I mean, that's the good point you make there because I get so annoyed when I see grand pianos with so much stuff on it. I feel like lifting up the lid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the pianos in those days were uh, pianos which I wrote on were just uprights and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Because uh, I've seen the, the videos of you. Uh, the earlier stuff that that hit in England, and if you're in America, you haven't heard some of the Gilbert's early stuff. It's just magical. So there's a lot of stuff on YouTube, and it's you're always playing in such a percussive style because you your drum drums were your first instrument. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tried to learn guitar. I'm left-handed, so it was difficult to get a left-handed guitar in those days. But um, yeah, so I kind of moved, you know, moved on to drums and stuff. And yeah, the left hand is the drums and my right hand. I'm not a very good piano player, but I'm rhythmic. Mm. So, so I have a good rhythm with my right hand and I have a good drum rhythm with my left hand, which helps me when I write the rock songs. Yeah, and it's all about feel too. So, you know, that, that resonates. You, you mentioned Elton earlier. Uh, I mean, there's some astonishing records that you have set. You're on record as the biggest selling solo artist in the UK, bigger than Elton John. Bigger than Rod Stewart, bigger than David Bowie. You had 16 top 40 records and six number ones. And that's a pretty astonishing accomplishment. And I suppose you were considered part of the British invasion, although the latter third of the British invasion, right? Uh, the early 70s. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, the early 70s. I mean, I'm. <clears throat> I mean, the success in America really took everybody by surprise, mostly me. I came into the business to, to be a success where I lived, which was in England and stuff. And so the, it was a surprise when everything took off around the world. The first success with Nothing Rhymed was a huge hit around the world, not in America, but it was in uh, Japan, Australia. And the, but I didn't go. It, the interesting thing for me is my manager kind of knew that I wanted to spend time writing. And the danger is if you have a hit record, 
what tends to happen is you immediately get offers to go everywhere. And if you do that, you kind of lose out on the writing element. So the second album you do may not be as good because you've, you've only written it in the gaps you've had between touring. So the great thing for me was that with all the success of the first record, I still, apart from TV shows and radio interviews and press, I was able to spend all that time at home writing songs for the next record. Because the key to everything I do is the songwriting. Right. The reason I'm talking to you, Louise and Fritz, is because of the songs. It's yeah. not because of me as an artist. I, I think you're one of the greatest songwriters of that era, without question. You have such beautiful sensitivity in your words. But you made a great comment about your relationship with touring and your relationship with recording. You said after your Israeli uh, performance that it, even if it's a beautiful show, the feeling of that beauty goes away immediately, but a long-lasting hit record lasts forever. So you were drawn to the writing even more than the performing. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I tend, I mean, I don't analyze anything that I do other than I have the ability to write songs, which I've done since I was around 14. It's just one of those weird things. It, I love music, and so the, the result of liking music means that you get into an area where you can write because you start off by copying all the people you like and you end up writing hopefully original songs. Yeah, the, it's the joy of songwriting for me is, is, you know, is the reason. At 76 years of age, I'm still that 14-year-old sitting on a piano trying to come up with something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, it's, 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 it's such a gift to have something that captures us for a lifetime that, that we want to, you know, for some people it's golf. And, you know, you're not going to ball around some grass and putting it into a hole. And, it, like, sometimes I think, like, who are you serving? But, <laughs> but with a song, my gosh, you are really serving humanity. And uh, that, that's a gift. I'm not, not taking anything away from people who are going to go out and play golf after they listen or maybe listening to this podcast on the golf course. It's, that definitely feeds your soul for sure. But a song, having that ability, I think that's God's, you know, your God's gift to the rest of us to give us that because we we need we need it so desperately but i wanted to talk about you know your instincts as a performer because you always knew what image you wanted to present and you know you'd carve out an image even if your manager wasn't you know when in england before you hit here cuz we only saw the sweater and the letter g but in england people saw you and you presented yourself as a um like a like a silent film star, like you have to pick out clothing that you're going to look forward to putting on, like what, because otherwise you're just going to dread every performance. So talk about what goes into you carving out that image. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, it has nothing to do with the writing of the songs and stuff. So, I mean, I like to separate the two because there's no way they connected. But I just like, it's dare to be different. I mean, the Beatles were the catalyst for me because they didn't have to have Beatle haircuts and collarless jackets and stuff. They would have been successful because they wrote great songs. But that image kind of stuck with me. So by the mid-60s mid with Flower Power, long hair was here to stay. Everybody wanted you to look like James Taylor. So all the record companies that I was with were always saying to me, just wear jeans and a long shirt and please grow your hair. Because I had a hairstyle that's currently the fashion, very short. But in those days, in the mid-60s, to go around with a pudding paste and a haircut, I looked kind of freakish. But I just did it to be different. As I say, it had nothing to do with the seriousness of writing songs, but it had everything to do with me wanting to be different. But you no knew. Record, you, you no knew. record company liked it. I mean, they all hated it. They all said, please, Gilbert, you'll be more successful if you try to look 
like everybody else and stuff. Yeah, but I I love that about you that you knew no, if I make if I create something that's distinctive and cool and sharp and also timeless, you know, as a kid I first saw you in the sweater with a G and I I gave no thought to that's how you were going to dress forever or that's who you were. It was just what you wore that day on Mike Douglas or you know whatever I saw. Yeah. And it's yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the the image thing is just, it's fun to do because it's it's not serious. It's just light. The Buster Keaton was the was the sort of the reason I, I got the G-Sweater. I saw a Buster Keaton film. The reason for my first image was Charlie Chaplin. I used to hire Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin jacket from a theatrical costume. <laughs> they always used to say, I hired for the weekend. And they used to say to me, what's the production you wanted for? And I said, I just want to look in the mirror over the weekend. That's all. <laughs> You, you you made a comment about that same thing in, in your documentary, which was that the audience has to allow the, the, the performer to grow up. They shouldn't expect that you're going to look exactly the same on stage now that you did when you were a young man. They have to allow you to grow up, which is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I, again, you know, once you've established yourself with an image, I mean, I was determined. There was no way that if Gordon Mills said to me, look... I don't like your image, and therefore, unless you change it, I won't manage you. Um, I would have walked. But Gordon Mills, to his credit, said, I don't like the image, but I will stick with it because I know the reason you're going to be successful isn't because of that. It'll be because of the songs and stuff. And, uh, you know, so it, it's 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 lighthearted. It's just fun to do. And, and uh, you know, once you've done that for a few years, then you can kind of just concentrate on the writing. I look now the way I've looked for the last 20, 30 years because it isn't necessary anymore. It's not like, uh, not rather than being stuck with the name Engelbert Humperdinck forever, which is also, <laughs> that was designed to cut, to cut through and it did. But now that, you know, at least clothing you can change, you know. Can't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I didn't call myself Gilbert O'Sullivan to begin with. Like, my yeah. real name is O'Sullivan, of course, mm -hmm. but I called myself just Gilbert because it's that kind of character that I wanted to create, like a Chaplin-esque character. Mm -hmm. You must remember, and Elton would tell you this, that when you're sitting on the piano for two hours, you're not moving anywhere. It's it's you're static. So if you can do something to, to make people look at you and think, wow, you know, <laughs> there's something other than you sitting there, because we don't go around with a microphone on a piano up and down the stage. <laughs> So it's it's part of the image thing uh, for us is that to look a little bit different sitting at the piano. And I, and I certainly did that. And Elton certainly did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You, 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 you know, you have the same trajectory that most rock stars have. You were hot as hot for a while. Then in the mid 70s, you sort of fell out of favor and you couldn't buy a break. But you made a brilliant remark about that. You said the first people to love you are the first people to bail on you after a while. And I guess that's true. The first people to get on the Gilbert O'Sullivan train just get tired of it before anybody else and are gone. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's right. And why not? It's, you know, it's, it's up to them. I mean, you just you get on with what you're doing and if people like you for however long, that's fine. And if they don't, that's also fine. But I would like to I, I beg to differ. I think that kids go through phases and what they love at 12, at 16, they have to say to their friends that they've outgrown, but they're coming to your concert today because they still love it. They never stopped loving it. They just went, they just grew up and had to have more mature tastes or cooler or what have you that happens in the arc of somebody's maturation as they go through adolescence. But I promise you, 
If, if you love a song, you love that song forever. I think it stays in your heart forever. I really do. Yeah, and I think, I, and I think you know, that the, when you do the concerts, I mean, when we do the concerts and I meet people and stuff, of course there are people there who got into me with the hit singles, but their love of my material stems also from the songs on my albums and stuff. And if you've made a lot of albums, it's kind of nice to know that people are into those too. But yeah, so people are there right from the beginning, dedicated fans all around the world. We've just come back from Japan and I'm meeting people who have been following me for the last 20, 30 years. Now you're, so that's, that's really nice. Yeah, you're a hot item in Japan, and you always have been. So talk about the Japanese fans, because they can be just so warm and, and loving. And we in the States have no awareness of what it's like for artists that are embraced by the Japanese people. So talk about that. Yeah, you have to be prepared, because they're quite, you know, the, the Japanese are, they appreciate you, but, but the, the clapping kind of, they clap, they don't sort of, move around and they don't react shouting or screaming. That's how it's been, but it's changing a little now. They're getting more excitable. We found this time compared to two or three years ago that they are beginning to enjoy themselves more and they're standing up at the end this time, which <laughs> which is really nice yeah. and stuff to see because they are a wonderful audience. Interesting thing with the Japanese, they with the records they put out of mind, they put the lyrics, obviously the Japanese version, but they also have the English version because for many people, that's how they learn English because they, they, they see the song lyrics, they listen to the song lyrics and that gets them into English words and stuff. So that's part of the reason why they want uh, the English translation on the CDs that they're released over. That's so cool. you, you have written such poignant, profound lyrics and one that was often misinterpreted was alone again naturally, and the kid walks up the tower, and you wonder if he's going to jump off. And I remember in an interview with Burt Bacharach, he said to you, you must have had a similar profound experience for you to write about that. And you said, that's not true. If you're a good writer, you don't have to have experienced a situation to be able to write thoughtfully about it. And I thought that was so wonderful. You really yeah. don't. The, the talented writer, whether it's a novelist or anything, is somebody that can observe something, absorb it, and put it in their own words. Yeah, and I, I think the key is, you, you just said it, you don't have to experience, but an understanding is the key factor. What makes you a good lyricist is, it, is if, if it's not based on experience, it's based on an understanding of what you're talking about. You know, the, the, the Alone Again talks about suicide, jumping off a... Mm -hmm. you know, so that's a serious subject. It's not light. So yes, have you experienced that? No, but I, I, I put myself into that position of trying to understand that. And that's the joy of songwriting. Mm -hmm. You know, that I, I've written a song which I love performing in America because it's written about an event of 9-11 and stuff, mm -hmm. all they wanted to say. And the, the interesting thing with that, I just really get into the subject it's a serious subject, but the joy of writing that song for such a serious and horrific event is the, is, is the reaction I get, particularly in America, like in New York, uh, when we performed it and stuff. So things like that make the whole process really special. That's the power of lyrics and stuff. You can do the light stuff, the, the gentle rock and roll stuff, simple, get down, silly lyric in some respects. But then you you can get into that those serious subjects, and, and that's that's... You know, that's part of the joy of, of, of songwriting. And part of, part of for all of us as, as a human experience, listening to a sad song or a very poignant song is like getting an embrace when we feel sad. We don't feel so alone when we're listening to the lyrics of a song that is, is giving voice to how we feel. We feel embraced. 
And so sometimes someone just needs to put on a song like Alone Again Naturally and, and have a good cry and know that this is universal. We all f- have these feelings. You know, you're just being human. It's okay. Yeah, and it, it kind of takes takes my breath away. It, the reaction that I get from people who feel, have that sentiment that you just expressed. I mean, that's really, it kind of, you know, it hits you too. Because the key, it's, it's the one song I'm learning that I never, when, I, when I'm rehearsing, I never play, I never sing the lyrics. I just go through it to, to maintain the chord structure. Mm. But it's, it's um, you know, it's a serious song. And the reaction I get, because they sing along with, with, with me, mm. most theatres and stuff. It's it really, it really makes it really makes it's a very special. I can imagine that's one of your peak moments in a concert playing that song. Um, we're we're in a really dark world right now. There's such a chasm between political sides and social sides. Um, when you're doing a concert, uh, is there a part of your repertoire that people are reacting more strongly to? Like you talked about your 9/11 song, is that the stuff that really seems to resonate with people now, or do they still resonate with your beautiful, poignant, soulful, uh, lovely songs like Claire? I, I mean, again, Fritz, I'm not really, in a, I'm not, I'm not there to kind of I, no self-analysis, which I think is a dangerous thing to do. I just get out there, start, mm-hmm. you know, we rock it up, we slow it down. We have a little sense of humor. We take a sample of new, you know, two or three songs from the latest album. But but uh, over two hours, they're all my songs. So the variety is very important because if every song was just I love you, you love me, baby, mm-hmm. I'd be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to know you have that diverse amount of material. And again, collectively, that you can do the light, the shade, the dark, the, 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 the humorous. That that I think is, is what allows you as a songwriter to keep to keep on wanting to do it. Does it sometimes overwhelm you when you're on the stage and you realize all of the sounds coming off the stage were were generated by you? Is that is that a, a beautiful feeling or overwhelming? Yeah, it's a lovely feeling, but I don't sort of view it like that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, the, you know, the people are there to see you and, and most of them you, you think are there because they really like you and stuff. So the expectation is that we put on a good show. We play the songs that they want to hear. <laughs> it's, I have to say, for, for for the songs we do in two hours, when I meet people afterwards, they say, you didn't play this one. Oh, of you course. No. <laughs> no. But again, that's kind of nice, too, because I, what I tend to say to them is that I'll, I'll, I will you next time we perform here where <laughs> we are, your song will be in there. I'll make, uh, make no problem. I'll they, stick they it in. Each... So, you know, they each have their own relationship with you that yeah. you yeah, that you really know nothing enough. you know nothing about it's between them and you and then they have this moment where they get to say a couple words to you but it, you know you mean so much to them and it's they they really have their own connection to you yeah and and, and louise to, to, the basics are that you want to come out of the theater after 2 hours to be in a happy mood and so I tell the audience on the current tour that when we were in New York a year ago, because we have a break in the middle, we do an hour and then we have a 50 minute break and then we come back out for the second hour. But in New York, we didn't tell them there would be an interval. So after the first hour, they started to leave the theater. We Ooh. were saying, come back, come oh, back. Come oh, my God. I've done that. Cleared the room and they never but, uh, came the back. Late, one, of the late, one of the ladies working at the theater said, as they were leaving, she said they had smiles on their faces. So even though they only saw half a show, <laughs> they had enjoyed it. You know, um, I was watching your documentary and an ironic 
piece of that was your first performance in Israel in that beautiful amphitheater there. And as I'm watching that, I'm looking at this beautiful, peaceful setting. And I'm wondering if you are reflecting back on that moment now with all this turmoil that's over in the Middle East right now. It just seemed sad to look at that peaceful, calm, what a what a beautiful venue to perform in. That's absolutely, I mean, interestingly enough, um, on that album that came out around that time, I had actually put on a justice for Palestinians, peace for Israelis. That was the kind of feeling we all had back then. Yes. We were meant to go to to uh, to Israel uh, earlier this year and stuff, but we didn't do it because I, things were starting to, you know, the the the, the demonstrations against the government over the policy that they were mm-hmm. being undemocratic, and so there was a lot of that was going on. So that so we ended up not going that time, but but we look forward to going back there. But the, but it you know what what's happening is just. I mean, Hard I to get your head around. It's terrible. It's horrendous. Mm-hmm. You, you, you were involved in two precedent-setting court cases. One must have been very hard for you emotionally because it was with and against your manager, Gordon. Explain how that went and why it was precedent-setting. Well, I, it's precedent-setting because uh, it's a conflict of interest. I mean, he's my manager and he's also the record company boss. So who's giving me the best deal? He can't give me the best deal if it goes against the company. So that's that's one of the issues, conflict of interest. But it all stems from it became a huge event, but it started off all I when Gordon Mills took me on in 1970, 69, 70, uh, I had been promised something for songwriters that was new and innovative. And that was songwriters would have been given the opportunity to have their own company within the publishing company. So for example, you uh, you have hundred percent, fifty percent goes to the songwriter. The writer you can't touch that but the other 50 percent goes to the publisher so what was being introduced for writers in 1969-70 was that they'd have their own company within the 50 percent of the publisher share so they'd mm-hmm. get a portion of that mm-hmm. but it would give them some rights on the publishing side so i said to gordon um when he took me on i said that's been promised to me by my publisher because i still had two years to go with the contract i'd signed in 67 and gordon said look if you're successful you'll get it so as the years went by, I would occasionally say hit to Gordon now and then, say, any news on this interest of songs that a uh, company I could have? And Gordon said, no, don't worry, you, you'll be getting it. And that went on and on. And then when we broke up, uh, due to my wanting to work with other producers, uh, because I felt that mid-70s dip could be rectified if I was to work with different producers. And, stuff. Mm-hmm. and Gordon said, if I don't produce your records, because he had produced them all, the earlier records, he said, then uh, that's it. I want. I don't want you to work with other producers. Well, I said, look, if I work with other producers, you're still my manager. So what could be wrong with that? And we could get more success. Anyway, he didn't agree to that. And I had to decide what to do. And I'm still very determined. I'm still looking for out there for more success. So we broke up. I shook his hand. I thought that that was, a, you know, it would be okay. He, he wasn't happy about it. But we shook hands and that was it. And then... When I went into the offices days later, after everybody knew I'd broken up with Gordon, and then the small company I'd been promised went out the window. So that's the only reason I went to court, went to lawyers. I said, I've been promised something, and it hasn't been given to me. That's what I want to go to court on. And, but they all said, look, you have to have more than that to go to uh, and it turned out to be more successful than you even had wished for or hoped for. I got back to all my masters. I got back all the publishing, but I wasn't asking for that. I think there is a danger 
A lot of people have tried it. A lot of people have used my case as an example of what they could do. Elton and Bernie Taupin, wow. they tried to win back stuff. Judges have, judges may not mu know much about music, but they know when people are being greedy, have they been mm -hmm. fair, have they been minded? And so I think that that's an important factor. And so throughout that court trial, it, it was clear all I was looking for was that interest in my songs. But the fact that the judge gave me the shirts off their back just goes to show that, it, that, that everything kind of went our way. The conflict of interest is a major issue. And so I was, I was really happy. But, I, you know, I, and to this day, I own the masters. I own the publishing. So I'm very happy to have that. But again, as, as I pointed out to you, you see how it started. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about... No, it's principles, uh, of course. <clears throat> yeah. And you, you were involved in another very important case that turned out to be the first one of its kind and the first of many, which is uh, Bismarck Key, the famous rap artist, uh, sampled one of your songs. You asked him not to do it because they have to get permission, and he did it anyway, and that launched into a court case. Yeah, I mean, he sampled the intro to Alone Again. And they asked us, uh, I was in the middle of recording an album when this came forward, asking if they could use it. And, and I hadn't heard it. So we said to them, send it over to us. And when I listened to it, and then I learned he was a comic rapper. I said, no way am I going to allow that. The one song in my catalog that I make sure is never used for comical reasons or for you is Alone and Ashley. Mm -hmm. I turned down major sync licenses for films that were had a comedic uh, in, mm. in, in it. And so... We said to him, look, uh, no, you can't use it and stuff. But he went ahead and did it anyway. So what do I do? I had to go to court in New York, get lawyers in, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars before we even got into court. And when we got into court, they weren't even there. But the judge, again, you see, this goes back to what I said about judges. They don't have to know a lot about music, but they certainly know about right and wrong and honesty and, and greed and stuff. The judge, here's what happened, just yeah. to, cut a, to, to yeah. cut a long story short. Uh, the judge said to them after a few days, he said, it was coming up to the Christmas season and Bismarck's record label was, was controlled by Warner's, major, major company. They had planned releases for the Christmas schedule. The judge said, if you don't remove all these, uh, if you don't uh, remove this, get this song taken off, I'll have all the Warner product stopped Whoa. for the Christmas releases. Wow. So, Hello. That got their you attention. You can imagine the S hit the fan big time. <laughs> and it was all over. I think there's a lot of squirrely stuff that goes on in the music industry that's tolerated. And then as soon as you put it in front of a judge, the judge goes, what? <laughs> you know, because we bend all kinds of rules just because folks want to be in the music industry. They want to get along. They want their product out there. They want to be have a voice. They want to be able to perform. And so we kind of people sort of suck it up. But like once it enters a courtroom, it's like probably crazy to people in, in, in the legal profession that folks have been getting away with this kind of this kind of stuff. You know, that's why your your cases were so, you know, definitive. Yeah, and I think, you know, even in, in recent times, George Michael, mm -hmm. his lawyers had, had, had my case to use because George oh. George Michael, when Faith was a massive success for him in America, he, he received huge advances from the record company. And then the next album he was bringing out, I think they gave him six or seven million to, to start with. And so the second album, he refused to do any videos. He refused to do any filming and promotion for it. They were furious. So that caused a conflict, 
conflict between him and the record company. And so he wanted to get out. So he went to court to win back the master rights and stuff. And they would use O'Sullivan's case as an example of an artist who got it back. Wow. But the danger is that George should realize that, that all he had to do was to say, look, I want everything back. I, I want to move on. I'll give you back half the money you gave me if you let me do it. But they don't do that. He wanted to keep the money and still get everything back. So it just didn't work out. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Who were your musical inspirations as a child? Uh, the biggest musical inspiration on the songwriting front are Lennon and McCartney. On the vocal side, Bob Dylan. So I used to sing like Bob Dylan and try and write songs like Lennon mm-hmm. and McCartney. Did you work so, with either of those in, in your career? No, I've been to, I was invited to a Paul McCartney party and, I, and he was at the other side of the ballroom dancing, but I didn't bother him. I'm not really starstruck. I mean, I admire uh, good writing, great writing and stuff. And, and they're certainly a huge influence for me. McCartney more than Lennon for me, I suppose. And Dylan, because I don't have a great voice, distinctive voice. And Bob Dylan certainly has a distinctive voice. And way back then with freewheeling and stuff, you know, I could be in the garden shed singing Masters of War and um, many of his songs. So those were the two major influences. Mm-hmm. And who has uh, approached you and told you that they were influenced by you that we would find interesting? Uh, well, I mean, it's interesting when, when you think that, that the likes of Neil Diamond and uh, Neil Sedaka and you've got uh, Michael Bublé and Dana Kroll recording uh, that song. That shows that, that there must be something about me that they like when they when they want to record that song. Yeah, you've been covered uh, Morrissey, which is interesting. I think that's such an interesting... And the Pet Shop Boys, lots of people have covered your work. Well, the the, the good thing with Morrissey, the interesting with Morrissey was that his favorite song is Nothing Rhyme, and he loved how I dressed. He loved that (laughs) image of the pudding basin haircut, the the chaplain jacket. He really loved that. (laughs) But the nice thing for me with him was that he he recorded the B-side of Uh, Nothing Rhyme. And I have a version of that, which is wonderful. And when I heard him do it, I thought, I'm going to do that. (laughs) <laughs> so I've actually sang the B-side of Nothing Rhymed in recent times simply because of Mar- Morrissey's version of it. So that's an inspiration loop that we're yes. creating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so nice. you, you, um, you're not the big pomp and circumstance guy. You don't like to do red carpet events. You're relatively shy. You're not, I, I so understand this and, and empathize with this. You're not good at promoting yourself. After you separated your relationship with Gordon, your brother Kevin became your manager. Does he still represent you for your work? Not, not my manager, Fritz. Just just uh, an assistant to me. He looks after all the finance. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I love the way you described it. He has, he has a way of making people comfortable, and he's very uh, smooth and charming, and he does everything that you don't do when you meet other people. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm notorious for writing letters to a bad review. <laughs> yeah. my, my daughter, who now works with me, who is preparing everything for you, uh, she stops me from writing those kind of letters and stuff. So the thing with good management is that that I, I can be overreact to things and so you know that I get I get really hurt if if, if there's criticism. I mean, I, you don't you shouldn't really let it bother you, but I, I can. You know, I, I get really kind of affected by a bad comment, uh, even if it's only my daughter would say, oh, I'll dismiss it, don't worry. But <laughs> it plays on me. It's a strange thing, though. Good for you. You stick up for yourself. And did they ever publish any of your rebuttals to a bad review in, like, the London Times or anything like that? No, I, I think that the certain reviewers that I've written to have, have responded and, um, you know, it, yeah, it's okay. It, it's not, I don't, it doesn't bother me now, but up to about 10 years ago, it bothered me quite a lot. But since my daughter's taken over, <laughs> she makes sure that that 
she can be dismissive of these kind of comments because for every bad comment, there's a few good ones. Yeah. And also there's a million people that read it and disagree. Yeah. So Not, hopefully. <laughs> no, I know because a lot of people aren't going to take the effort to write and, and disagree, but they're going to read it and say, this is ridiculous. And you know, you've done that when you've read something that you disagree with. It kind of gets people even more in your corner when they feel mm-hmm. like, you know, that you that that that's required because how dare they go this 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 master songwriter how dare they you know it it gets people's cackles up and the bad ones sting worse than the complimentary ones it's like a performance if you have a bad performance the neurosis of that lasts a lot longer than having a good performance that goes away the next day and you're off to the races i remember for example in the late 70s remember the punk era 78 to 79 I, mean, I went out on the road in the mid-70s with, with professional musicians and stuff, and top-class musicians. When the punk area came along, I decided that I would take a, a semi-pro band. We, we, we kind of uh, auditioned bands, young bands of just fiery. F- and, and, you know, we just got in the spirit of that, but I got hammered by the press. <laughs> I got hammered by the press for going on the road and doing that kind of singing my songs but doing and having a sort of a unprofessional kind of band to give a kind of loose but you know i get in the spirit of that and that whole punk thing you know I can it's still like the be dylan at the newport pop festival thing where he got hammered for being electrified and got booed off the stage or whatever it was yeah and when he when he first appeared in england and he went and he did well not his first appearance in england his first appearance in england was just him and the guitar but when he when he did his first concert in england with the band you know there, there were people in the audience shouting out you know Traitor. Traitor, there you go. Satan. <laughs> well, how many pieces do you take with you when you're on the road now? Uh, how many How many pieces? Players, you know. Well, players, just uh, currently it's just myself and my guitar player. Oh, and, nice. that's, uh, that's, that's, that's it. It's intimate, up close and personal. Beautiful. It's nice if people get to hear the lyrics more clearly in that kind of atmosphere. Absolutely. So we're mm-hmm. really enjoying it. That's great for the troubadour to go in there that way too. That'll be fun. Absolutely. And I also think that when it's an older song that someone grew up with, they heard it one way as a child, and they will hear it differently, having lived a bit more of their lives. And yeah, yeah, perhaps again, it's, uh, Louise, I'm not, you know, I don't kind of look into those reasons why or how or if, but, but you're probably right in what you're saying. So for me, it's just, you know, the simplicity is not rocket science. I write songs, make a record, I get out on the road, promotion it. We do concerts, and I hope people like them. And, and and that's it. And it's, you know, thus far, it's worked out pretty well. So long may that continue for as long as it. Be. I, I think next to Alone Again Naturally, your most beautiful song is Claire, mm-hmm. and it's such a sweet song, particularly if you're the father of a daughter. You wrote this song because you babysat for your manager's child, Claire, who mm. was two or three at the time. And it's such a heart-wrenchingly beautiful song. And then you made this comment that these days I could never write a song like that because people would misinterpret my energy with this little girl. And I thought, wow, that is sad, but it's so true. Yeah, yeah. The, one of the saddest things I, I can recollect on this issue is 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 um, I, saw, I read an article by a very popular um, uh, person who... I think he, he he's yeah he, he's very popular on the in the newspaper, and he had a friend who said to him, "Look, there's a there's a Saturday morning radio show for children, presented by this particular presenter, and they play lots of songs uh, for for children, 
And this man said to this this big presenter, said, you know, my daughter really loves Claire. Do you think you could you know this uh, person who presents this show? Could you ask him uh, to include Claire? And when he went to this person and said, you know, a, a friend of mine, could you play Claire? And he said, oh, no, we can't do that. <laughs> so, so it's kind of really that's sad. Really, that's really, really sad. That's the, world, that's the world we live in now. Mm-hmm. It's, we perform it on stage. We do it all over England. We do it in Japan. We do it in America. You know, we really love the song. And, and the thing with Claire is we still see her. Uh, we have a good relationship with each other. I'm proud of the song, proud that I, reco- I, I wrote oh, it for Oh, my Gordon. God, it's breathtaking. It's a beautiful song. I'm sure she's proud of it, too. Oh, yeah. How do, I, I, there's, a, there's a part in your documentary where you sort of have a, a, a meeting with her after a while. She came to see you at the Hyde Park concert or something, and it was very touching. And uh, she and, I guess, the people she was with were crying at the, at the performance. Well, it was not the other people she was, because my daughters took her there. Oh, in, front of her 20, in front of about 24,000 people, and we invited her along, of course. And so when I sang Claire, it, it, brought, it, it was quite tearful, oh, because they, it means so much to her and stuff. And, his, and Gordon's wife, who died, passed away only a few years ago. I had a really good ending up relationship with her. And... You know, for, for me to write that song, for for it to be the success, Gordon Mills played the harmonica. It's Claire, of course, who laughs at the end. Mm-hmm. And Joe, you're cooking in the background. So it's wife. a family memory. It's a treasure. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Talk about opening. When you began, you opened up for lots of big acts, right, on the road, like the Carpenters. And we we know that some interesting there were some interesting events that took place when you were opening up for the Carpenters. Can you tell that story? Yeah, well, I knew they loved. It started because they really loved Alone Again, and and so they were doing a, um, a Hollywood Bowl. Is it the Hollywood Bowl? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it was the Hollywood Bowl, a big concert, and they wanted uh, me to be a guest on it. And, uh, so yeah, so I, we're up for it. I went to Los Angeles, and on the day of rehearsal, uh, to go out with the musicians that I had, the piano was there, Richard Carpenter's piano. It was locked. So I couldn't play the piano. Oh, man. That's now, terrible. So the big mistake my manager made was not saying, right, if you don't unlock the piano, there won't be a guest. <laughs> that's that's Where, bad. Was, Richard's piano was locked. It was locked up? Yeah. Backstage? Yeah. So what was Richard going to do? No, on stage. He couldn't do the performance on stage. So what happened? So my manager should have pulled me out and said, if you don't unlock the piano, he won't be going on. And so I had to go out uh and play that piano on the night. And there were all these buttons on, and I really got a bit lost. I was really kind of taken aback from it. So it wasn't a happy experience. And when I came off the stage, uh, I just, I was almost in tears because I was really down about the whole thing. As I say, I shouldn't have really done it, not having had time to rehearse. But there you go, I had a dressing room full. I've never seen so many flowers and fruit baskets in my whole life. But you, it didn't, you know, I, I was gone. Before. When you so, perform, you play with a baby grand or something, right? You don't play with an electronic piano, do you? No, I do. I, I play with a, an RD-1000 keyboard, which changes key. I, I use three keys. I have concert pitch, a semitone below, a tone below. Oh, as wow. one gets older, singers will tell you this. As you, as you get older, your voice gets deeper. And so people like Rod Stewart can't be as raucous as they used to be. Even Alton doesn't have the softness in his oh. voice now. He's still well able to sing. But that softness goes because as one gets older, you need to really take it down. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned that over the years and stuff. So the keyboard I have is really good. I also have an electric piano sound in it, and it looks good. 
It's not just a crossbar stand. I would like to hear a That's little bit that. about your music room, which is depicted in the in the documentary. And it's the kind of thing that makes your jaw drop. You know, anybody would want to walk in. And I'm sure you don't. Maybe that's the room that none of the kids were ever allowed in. To, tell us about that room. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the one. It's the one room the housekeepers not allowed in. <laughs> <laughs> I had but a feeling. It's, it's organized chaos. Every, I mean, I like everything to be where it is, and it, the, the room is covered with CDs. It's covered with documents. The music room is is I've, I've made it smaller so that it's just the piano uh, and a cassette player. I do all my writing on cassettes, which I think Diane Warren famous American songwriter. I think she uses cassettes. She does. She's, she's a know, friend. I, she's a friend of mine and her room is messier than yours. Is it true that she uses cassettes? Yes. There you go. And stuff. So I prefer them to the, the digital devices are wonderful. They're very tiny. They're brilliant. They sound great. Cassettes are easy to work with. They don't sound great, but it doesn't matter if it's a good song. It doesn't matter how rough it sounds. And so my music room is that everything, it's organized chaos and stuff. You know, when the kids were little, of course they could come in and they, I have lovely cassettes where it's with the three of us just playing around and then singing little tunes with me and stuff. Kind of very special for them when they hear them now. But that's it. I mean, I'm, it's organized chaos because it looks a mess, but for me, everything is where I want it to be. And God forbid I came home and things were moved, I would be in a... You're a, admittedly OCD. You talk about that. Yeah, Every rug has yeah, to be in the right place. Yeah, yeah, obsessive compulsive. I am, but not in a bad way. No, <laughs> I mean, you know, the bathroom has two sinks: one for my wife and one for me. <laughs> wow! So I can do all the cleaning around the sink, and uh, yeah, so it's 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 called friendly OCD. Yes. So when your kids were when your kids were growing up, did they express any interest in music or did you steer them towards it or were you just open to whatever they want to do? We're just going to. Well, we, we, we encourage them, of course, you know, to, to get into music. It's an, it's an important part of education to get into music. So Helen Marie uh, tried piano, but didn't really work out. So she, she went on to the violin mm. and uh, the younger daughter, Tara, went on to the cello. So they did that for a reasonable amount of time. And then they move on. <laughs> but yeah. I, didn't, I didn't push them to want to get... You know, I'm lucky that, unlike, say, um, you know, Paul Simon's son uh, made records, Paul McCartney's son made records, it's a very difficult thing to follow a successful... Oh, the yeah. hardest thing you have in the, the show. The heart goes out to them for the struggle that they have. Yeah. You know, uh, As I mentioned before, your, your documentary, and I'm sure this is the way you are in real life, has so many great chunks of wisdom in it that I just loved... One of my favorite is you're talking about uh, letting your fame go and then having a rebirth or, you know, uh, people that do their final tour seven times. You say if you get off the train, meaning you retire from your career, you should not be allowed back on the train. <laughs> the key is to not get off the train in the first place. Yeah, get off the, you know, it, it's, I think if you stop and, and then, you know, disappear and then do a comeback. Yeah, I don't think it's that good. Stay on there. Stay on there. Turn paper, whatever it is. To, to, you know, I think that's more because it keeps you up there. Mm -hmm. I think if you get it off, you lose something. Uh, you come back, maybe not for the right reasons. And so, but if you're always on the treadmill, you know, if you keep on it and you enjoy it and you're good at it, then, then stick with it. And you're, you're very disciplined too. like, maybe this is a part of your OCD that's, uh, you know, good a good quality but you're very disciplined with your writing and you treat it like your your job tell us about your schedule well the, the writing is very much like the brill building mentality um, louise brill building is in new york where mm -hmm. 
the likes of Carl King and um, Neil Sedaka. Neil Sedaka. They would all go in to write songs. Don Kirshner had the publishing company, owned the building. So they clock in at nine o'clock, go into a room with a piano or with a guitar and sit there till five o'clock to come up with songs. And uh, so that mentality, that, that discipline is what I, is, is what I use myself. I, I start, you know, I sit for eight hours a day. I sit at the piano to try and come up with melodies. If I come up with a good melody, I put on cassette, move on, try and come up with another one. It doesn't matter that you haven't finished that melody or finished a lyric to it. The key to a good melody is that if it's good, it can, you know, it, it can use it at any time. Have you written so, for other people? No, no. I just write for myself. That's enough trouble. <laughs> so so you, you've had many covers. Now, do people have to ask your permission to, to cover a song? No, I don't think so. If you were, if you were to do a copy, Louise, uh, it's fine. I mean, all you need to be careful of is, is not changing lyrics and stuff. Mm. As, long as, as long as you stick to the lyric, then, uh, you know, your version would be as good as anybody's. <laughs> Um, are you confident in that? Have you heard me sing? <laughs> well, but then you, know, you, you get the rights, like ASCAP or BMI, or somebody has to pay you the rights for this person having recorded your song, right? That's how you benefit from it. I guess so. I mean, again, I don't go into the detail on that and stuff. I'm mm -hmm. happy. I mean, I didn't come into the business for it to make money. I come in to be a success. Mm -hmm. I'm not unhappy that I've earned money because of it. But I think that if people write to me and say that uh, give them a little uh, help on career choices i always maintain that to be a success it's not about wanting to make a lot of money it's for the love of what you want to do and if it's songwriting the love of songwriting should get you somewhere yeah if, I, you're, in, if you're in it to be a success and make money then go and work in a bank mm -hmm. yeah i think money for any creative endeavor money should be a byproduct you should yeah. do the thing that you love and it's a dangerous it's, it's dangerous uh, louise to have that approach that wanting to so I think you, you, you get mixed up. Mm -hmm. Do it for the right reason. So you're going to be coming to the West Coast. You're going to be in Phoenix on November 22nd. You're going to be in San Francisco on November 24th. And you're going to be in Los Angeles on November 25th. Tell folks what they could expect to see when they come to your show. Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of just the two of us, my guitarist and myself, over two hours and up close and personal. Uh which is nice for the reason, again, as I said earlier, you can hear lyrics clearly. And it's, it's just, uh, you know, the, 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 they're all my songs, that there's fast, slow, medium, and uh, different styles and stuff, uh, which I think is a good thing for you as a writer to have that. So, you know, thus far, it's worked. Uh, we, so we're, I'm so looking forward to coming to it. Is this a continuation of a tour you've already started? Where you were yeah, in your, yeah oh. we did well, earlier this year. Um, late last year, sorry, end of last year, we were in the, the North Park, we were in New York, mm -hmm. that, those areas and stuff. Uh, and what, what we did three years ago when we came to New York and we did a couple of shows in California, uh, we stayed over. What we did this time was we did the shows uh, in the New York area and then we came home and then we're coming back for you. So we're all looking forward to appearing in Los Angeles, of course. And... Uh, Really looking forward to coming up to San Francisco. And, and actually, after we've done the three shows, we're going to Honolulu. Oh. We're going to do two shows in Honolulu. That's, and then we'll have a couple of days off and, and come home. So that will round off the year in a kind of nice way. Really nice. Yeah. Before we go, talk about your new album, your latest album. Driven. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's people say, why be called a driven? I guess I guess I pretty much summed it up talking to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have that in you. It's that you, you have that kind of drive, uh, which I think is important to have at your age because it's you get to a point where, you know, maybe you should be slowing down. I'm not slowing down. I agree. I'm, I'm the same way. As determined as determined as ever. So I'm really happy with the album. I work with different producers on every album because I feel it's always the same singer, always the same songwriter. So it's kind of nice to have new blood in the producer who works with you because mm-hmm. they're, 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 the element that they bring to it will make that difference. There's a danger if it's always you with the same musicians, the same producer, mm-hmm. same the same song. So it's good to have that variation. And I think that's what a, a different producer brings. The current producer is... Andy Wright, he produces Simply Red, he produces uh, Simple Minds. And the nice thing with this album is I have two duets. One is with, me, is with Mick Hucknall from Simply Red. I knew he was a fan of mine. Yeah. And, um, and so therefore, because we had the same producer, he said to my producer when he went to meet, him, meet up with him, you know, if Ray has got a song, I'd love to do a singer duet with him. Oh. So that worked out really nice wow. for a song called Let Bygones Be Bygones. And the other the other duet is with uh, a Scottish singer called Katie Tunstall. Yeah. And she's had mm-hmm. some success in America, Katie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, what suddenly I see was a big success for her. So and you've we got... Sent her... Yeah, no, finish, Sorry. Your, finish your thought. Finish your thought. No, no, go ahead. You go ahead. No, I was just going to say on your website, which we'll have in the show notes, that uh, there's a video with KT. Yeah. And that was the nice thing. I hadn't done a video in 20 years. So oh. we had a really nice time. Because she recorded the song in California where she's based. And of course, uh, we didn't meet up until she came over for the video. But it worked out really well because when we recorded the song, we felt it would be good for a duet. And then I said to Andy, I said, you know, maybe we should approach uh, Katie because suddenly I see the success she had, a similar kind of feel. And she really loved the song. Oh, and, it's uh, cool. She put her part on over there. And as I say, came over for the video. We spent the day together, talked about music, oh. had a really nice time. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, I advise everyone to check it out. And folks can find you on Spotify. And where else should folks look for you? In the garden. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm, I don't have a mobile phone, Louise. I'm not really computer literate. I'm com- totally computer illiterate. You're a so saint. My, How have you survived? My daughter survived? runs the show. You know, for example, I buy records. I want CDs. I mm. want to sit down with the CD, look at the booklet, and stuff. But as you know yourself with streaming and stuff, what happens is if I say to my daughter, I've heard this great track, can you get it for me? She'll just press a button. Mm-hmm. And it's, so, I mean, that, that I want a copy. I want to be able to take that copy and sit down in my music room and listen to it. It's a different world, but it's the, it amounts to the same thing, a love of music, whether it's streaming, whether it's on this or that. You mentioned at the beginning, uh, listening to you with podcasts and stuff. It's amazing mm-hmm. how popular they've become. Because mm-hmm. I've been listening to the one Paul McCartney has done with the man who Put out the book on all his lyrics. Yes. And so, so now they've. What's that McCartney one called? I haven't heard about that one. Yeah, McCartney has talked to him about all the songs, and uh, it's oh. the Hulu documentary. Uh, what's the guy's name? Rick Rubin. Yeah. Uh, but is that the same one? No, 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 no. It's oh. not Rick Rubin. Oh. Okay. It's the guy who did. Uh, I think last year or earlier this year, McCartney released a book, put out a book of all his song lyrics and stuff, and the man who put it together. Uh, the oh, author of together, ooh, I, I want to hear that. The one who is, done, is the one who's done the podcast, and the one where McCartney talks about mm-hmm. various songs, and um, and and so it's very interesting. Very okay. interesting. We'll find that and we'll have that in the show notes. So you do yeah. sometimes listen to digital content. Do you what? Do you stream movies? Do you guys watch 
you know, do you have an Apple TV or a Roku? Do you watch films? Yeah, yeah. Well, I need my daughter very often to come in and get the oh, yeah, yeah, tech support. Yep. That's, that's why we have children. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, listen, I, I tell you, it's an honor to talk to you, uh, sir, and and thank you for putting all these beautiful sounds into the universe. And I know that you're going to have a successful tour of the U.S., particularly here in Los Angeles. Welcome well, to thank town. Thank you to you. Uh, thank you to you and Louise Fritz. I really enjoyed talking to you. Guys. I'm so glad. Thank we enjoyed you. talking to you. Okay, we're gonna. I'm gonna read our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Weezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel and talk about us on social media, if you would. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Gilbert O'Sullivan. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin, Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. That was awesome. That was so wonderful, Gilbert. Thank you so much. We can call you Ray. 